Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Robert Nichols, who is the author of Theft is Property, um, with an exclamation point, Dispossession and Critical Theory. This book was published in 2020 by Duke University Press, and it brings together a variety of sort of perspectives with regard to political theory and understanding how indigenous people have sort of confronted the concept of property, as well as how um, a variety of Anglophone countries have approached Indigenous people's claims with regard to property. But I will let Robert explain all of that to us. Today, I'd like to welcome Robert Nichols and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Robert. Hi. So thank you so much for the invitation to come and kind of share with you a little bit about what I've been thinking about and writing about for the last little while. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I can tell you a little bit about how I came to this project by way of a bit of kind of biographical detail about myself that will maybe hopefully situate both the origins of the project and I think some of the stakes of it. Um, So I currently work at the University of Minnesota. Um, I'm a political theorist in the political science department there, but I'm originally from Canada. I'm from a very small community in the central part of the province of Alberta in Western Canada. And there, growing up in that context, one of the most important axes of political struggle and conflict was really the struggle between Indigenous peoples in that area and uh, the descendants of white European settlers. I am myself not Indigenous, and I grew up in an Anglophone white settler community, but it was a community that was um, kind of situated in the midst of a number of other indigenous communities. So that's been a longstanding kind of concern of mine personally. Um, I did a PhD in political theory um, at the University of Toronto under the supervision of James Tully, who has a kind of long history and a big impact on thinking through these questions. And then I spent a couple years studying in Germany with people who work more in the German Frankfurt School kind of Hegelian Marxist tradition. So all of those different elements find their way into this book and into the way in which I took up this problem. And essentially, the the book is an attempt to try to bridge these two intellectual and political traditions. On the one hand, a now very rich tradition of indigenous political thought, and on the other, um, European critical theory, but especially the kind of Hegelian Marxist tradition. And within that, you you sort of focus on the idea of dispossession, um, but it's a complicated understanding um, that you lay out early in the text. Um, and you also modify it somewhat by talking about it as recursive dispossession So before we wade into um, some of the sort of um, bridges between indigenous political thought 
and and to some degree um, the the German Frankfurt School discussions. Can you talk a little bit about the concept itself of dispossession and the way that you are thinking about it in your work here? Sure. So um, I started this project, it kind of emerged out of something else that I was working on. And it emerged because I found myself just continuously using this word, dispossession, along with the term that is kind of its closest proximate concept, which is expropriation. And I found I kept using this word and I noticed it occurring across a wide range of different intellectual traditions. But I realized at some point that I didn't entirely understand what I meant by it. Um, I noticed that in a, not just in indigenous struggles, it's a kind of key concept, but also in emerging work by people like um, Nancy Frazier and Judith Butler has a book on dispossession. David Harvey uses the term accumulation by dispossession in his work. And so it kept cropping up in a variety of places, but I felt like it was missing a kind of more systematic analysis of what was actually meant by this. So to start with, I just looked at what indigenous peoples and their allies predominantly meant by the term in the context that I was working out of, which is the Anglo settler societies like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. And in that context, the concept of dispossession is predominantly, I think, used to describe or name a feature of the territorial acquisition of settler colonization. So the basic idea here is that unlike other forms of imperial domination in which indigenous peoples or local communities are generally subjugated and turned into a kind of exploited, racialized, laboring underclass, In the Anglo-Settler colonies, what really happened, especially forcefully over the course of the 19th century, was the large-scale displacement of those peoples for the sake of acquiring their land base. And the territorial foundation of these indigenous societies then became the territorial foundation for these neo-European settler colonies. So it's quite common in these countries to find that indigenous peoples describe their experience of colonialism differently than in imperial dependency or in plantation colony kinds of histories. They describe it as an experience of dispossession. And what they mean by that is usually something to do with this territorial acquisition, the kind of land-centered nature of settler colonization. The um, kind of problem that emerges out of that, both sort of conceptually, but also practically, politically, is that dispossession has the tendency to kind of push these um, struggles up onto the horns of a dilemma. And that is because the term tends to both um, refuse, but also presuppose some investment in concepts of property or possession. So what I look at in the book is just the notion that um, dispossession is first and foremost, of course, a negative term. And it's negative both in the sort of ordinary language sense as a pejorative condition, but also in the more philosophical sense that it is defined by the absence of some attribute. And most obviously or intuitively to suffer a condition of dispossession is to experience a privation of possession. So it's some kind of normatively objectionable loss of possession or proprietary control. And in this sense, it seems to be a species of theft. 
But insofar as this is implied, like I say, it kind of drives people into this paradox or dilemma. Now, I think there's a sort of general version of this, which is found in a lot of other strands of um, critical theory. It's found in Marxism and in certain strands of feminism and certain strands of critical race theory, some of which are discussed in the book. And the general concern is that those working within these kind of critical theoretical traditions are generally skeptical about the emancipatory potential of framing social struggles as an extension of property relations, right? But the more particular concern in the context that I'm looking at is that to frame colonialism as a form of dispossession seems to reinforce rather than undermine this general logic of possession and property that strengthens the grip that these languages have over our moral and political vocabularies. And thus, from the standpoint of critical theory, that at least per, seem to be contradictory or conservative or even self-defeating. When I looked at it in the book, I found particular, this wasn't in a certain sense, a kind of just abstract or semantic problem, but there, there was a real political and even legal dimension to this that, that give heightened stakes to the problem, I think. Because in these contexts, to describe territorial acquisition as a form of dispossession appears to commit oneself to a claim about original possession. Um, and so more precisely, critics of these indigenous movements commonly charge them with lodging a contradictory set of claims, namely that the earth doesn't belong to anyone and it was stolen from them, from its original owners. Um, this kind of tries to leverage then these two sides of the concept as it's being used um, as a means of trying to undermine indigenous people's claims by sort of forcing them to make a decision on this. Either one drops the um, language of possession altogether, which appears to um, undermine the, one's ability to avail oneself of the kind of normative worth of the concept of dispossession, or one just accepts that it's an ordinary case of theft, in which case one is forced to try to provide a kind of general theory of original possession. So that was the kind of uh, intellectual and political problem space that I began trying to think through. And I think dispossession sits very kind of uncomfortably up on this, um, this sort of paradox or seeming problem. And and into in this paradox, as you note, this is also to some degree a bit of a clash between a kind of Anglo or Western approach to thinking legally of the idea of property and ownership and the indigenous concept of you know, the, the earth does not necessarily belong to one to own. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the contemporary, you, you sort of note them within the book, um, scholarship in Australia, in a number of countries where the, the sort of a paradox um, and the tension has been part of arguments made about land possession claims by indigenous people. Sure. So if the kind of central paradox is the idea that one is 
trying to hold together two claims that on the surface seem to be to run in tension to one another, namely that the earth is not property of anyone or does not belong to anyone, is not properly thought of as a kind of object of possession on the one hand, and also that it has been stolen from its proper owners, then the solution to that apparent contradiction might be simply to drop one or the other of the concepts or one of the other of the claims, right? So for instance, one could simply drop the second claim, i.e. that it has been stolen, simply say, actually, what indigenous peoples are arguing is more straightforwardly just simply that the earth should not be thought of as a kind of object of proprietary control or interests. And I discuss that sort of strategy for dealing with this in the book a little bit through a survey of work by other by actual indigenous thinkers. That includes people like um, Eileen Morton Robinson, who's an important indigenous theorist who works out of the Australian context. Also a woman named Patricia Montour Angus, who's a Mohawk legal scholar. Um, she worked at predominantly out of the Canadian context. I also look at a range of arguments that have been developed by activists and intellectuals, public intellectuals in the indigenous world in North America, especially who think through the questions of land relations in strictly non-proprietary senses. So some of those people include people like Glenn Colthart or Audra Simpson, Leanne Simpson, uh, Jody Bird, Keolani Kawanui, Joanne Barker. There's a whole really rich tradition and set of intellectual debates within indigenous communities, both on the ground sort of level, but also at the level of academia, where indigenous communities are often trying to produce alternative conceptions of land, alternative relatedness to land, ones that strictly repudiate altogether this kind of proprietary interest and try to push back against at least what they perceive to be a um, largely European investment in the idea of the exclusive control and ownership of the earth um, as a foundational right. My, um, my project really tries to give due credit to that. I think it's an important sort of strategy. It's a rich and important tradition or vein of thought. Um, but then I also try to pursue or supplement that through an alternative argument, because really the crux of the argument of the book is that while you could resolve the paradox by simply dropping one of the two claims, a different way to resolve it would be to try, in a sense, to hold those two claims together, but hold them together in a new way. And that leads me eventually to what I call in the book um, a theory of recursive disposition. And so that was my next question. <laughs> Um, to explain what you mean by the concept of discursive dispossession in part because it also integrates the dimensions of critical theory into thinking about this concept itself of dispossession, but all allows for the, as you say, holding together of these two claims simultaneously. Sure. So, um, kind of maybe before I, I uh, give you a sense of what how I'm trying to resolve this in a different way, um, like you said, there's another sort of strand of this within European critical theory that also forms a central component of the book, 
And I, and I go to that work um, as well because I want not simply to um, criticize existing debates around these, but I also want to provide an explanation for them in a sense. Um, so more authentically a form of critique that is not simply criticizing existing ones, but also trying to show how that arises or how that comes about. And my way of doing that is to try to trace, in a certain sense, a more sympathetic version of the skepticism around the language of possession. Uh, and the more sympathetic version, uh, from my standpoint at least, comes out of European critical theory traditions, but especially out of the long-standing interactive relationship between um, European anarchism and Marxism. So I can kind of give you a little bit of a sense of, of very briefly what the, what the argument of the book is on, on that regard, too. That would be great. Um, so the, the basic idea here is just simply to note that concepts of expropriation and dispossession also have, of course, a very long and complex history in European intellectual traditions. Um, and I trace some of the early versions of this, kind of the early emergence of just the terms expropriation and dispossession, as well as some of their cognate terms like eminent domain or confiscation in early modern European intellectual traditions. But where things get really interesting for my purposes is right around the end of the 18th century within 18th, late 18th century European debates. And the reason that it's most interesting for me is that this is the period when European radicals were really trying to denounce also a widespread and longstanding case of land theft, which they also called dispossession or expropriation. Now, the context for this was the struggle against the landed aristocracy, against feudalism. And so what I look at here is what radical thinkers, people like Rousseau and others in the kind of French Republican tradition, what they were noticing was that feudalism was propped up in part uh, by an effective class monopoly over the ownership of land, exercised by the aristocracy against the commoners. So the rural peasantry in particular found themselves born immediately and indefinitely into a kind of rentier position as permanently in arrears to landed aristocracy, to the landed aristocracy who kind of effectively owned uh, and had exclusive control over landed property. So, of course, part of the critique of feudalism was a critique of this broad system of land ownership. Now, what I noticed was that towards the end of the 18th century, radicals began to turn the tables against the landed aristocracy by denouncing this system as the result of a massive act of theft. It was really a theft by, in a sense, the 1% over the 99%. And they even called this kind of large-scale um, trans-historical act of theft dispossession or expropriation. I look, give examples in the text to work by... Hobbes uses the, word, uh, uses the word dispossession, but so does Rousseau. Um, Paine, in an important kind of work towards the end of the or turn of the 19th century, talks about the dispossession of the commoners uh, from the lands. And so I tried to reconstruct a little bit of the context of those debates. 
But for me, where those arguments reach a certain zenith, I think, is in 19th century anarchism. People like Proudhon and Kropotkin, in a sense, took up the language of dispossession and expropriation and extended it or radicalized it even further beyond what people like uh, Paine or Rousseau had said. Because for Proudhon or Kropotkin in the 19th century, it wasn't just that the original sort of theft of land and the seizure of of so-called real estate was problematic, although they thought that was problematic in itself. They also made the kind of broader claim that all other forms of uh, property, all other wealth inequities, that is the inequities in non-real estate, in liquid forms of assets, were also, in a sense, effects of this original act of theft. And so, the, of course, the slogan of these 19th century anarchists, which is, um, uh, in a sense, referenced by the title of my book, is uh, La propriété, c'est le vol. Property is theft. And the point being that they weren't just denouncing inequities in landed property, but in inequities in all forms of property, but connecting those two problems together. Now, in, in my story, um, the rise of Marxism uh, functions as a bit of a turning point in the kind of heightening of the rhetoric and the sort of radicalizing of this idea of dispossession as a kind of grand theft of the earth from the commoners or from the uh, pet rural peasantry by the uh, aristocracy and their inheritors. And it's a bit of a turning point here because Marx himself, of course, was initially very impressed by these arguments by French anarchists, but he importantly kind of turned away from them and came to see them eventually as a restricted kind of argument that is as sort of improperly formulated. As I understand it, Marx's concern is that the French anarchist use of terms like expropriation and dispossession were overly ahistorical and abstract conceptions. That is that they covered a whole diversity of different kinds of injustices from sort of time immemorial to the present. And that anarchists couldn't really account for the different forms of social organization that were actually produced over the historical time. Of course, in particular, Marx is concerned that capitalism isn't merely a repetition of what's happened before, but is a kind of qualitatively distinct form of social organization and domination, and that the trans-historical sweep of these expansive notions of expropriation that are found in classical anarchism can't capture the kind of qualitative shift that takes place under capitalism. But more to the point, I think, Marx is concerned that insofar as anarchists construed dispossession as a kind of massive act of theft, this projected backward onto the rural peasantry a property claim. So it was against its own, you know, overt inclinations. It was invested normatively in defending these people as the real property owners. And this effectively generates a similarly abstract and ahistorical concept of property um, to which the anarchists uh, were wedded. So I look in the book at a couple of different versions of this concern as it arises sort of in the middle of the 19th century. Um, The main theorist of this for me is Marx, but I also look a little bit to work by people like Max Stirner, who uh, also uh, advanced a similar sort of argument. 
And the thrust of that argument, right, is that property, of course, must be logically, chronologically, and normatively prior to theft. That the idea of theft is derivative from the concept of property. So to claim that one is a victim of theft is to reinscribe and reinforce the idea and the ideal of property. And, you know, kind of this is pithily put by Marx when he says that the whole slogan, property is theft, makes no sense because property, because theft presupposes um, property. And so the anarchists have kind of generated a confused um, language there. Now, one thing I do notice, though, is that despite this kind of concern, Marx does continue to use the terms. Uh, in German, he speaks of expropriation and, and eignung. These are used even after in Marx's more uh, mature works, like Das Kapital is, um, is uh, filled with references to expropriation. And the expropriation of the expropriators is a kind of famous uh, line from there as well as discussions of what he calls enteignung. And what I try to show in the book is that although Marx continued to use these concepts, he really tried to change their normative and conceptual intention. In effect, he tried to show that you can still talk about expropriation or dispossession. You can still lodge a critique of it as problematic, but you can do so without saying that it's wrong because it's an act of theft. So that's the sort of key, in my view, conceptual move that Marx makes. He tries to reconstruct the concept. And he does this because he wants to show that the concept of dispossession or expropriation isn't backward looking in its normative structure. So it's not an offense to people in virtue of their being original owners. But rather for Marx, the problem with expropriation is that um, in, in the language of capital, it's a separation process. It severs people from direct access to the means of subsistence uh, and reproduction in in terms of their relationship to the land. And by separating them from their direct access to the subsistence, it drives them into proletarianization. And thus it drives them into conditions of exploitation and or class domination. So what's important for me is that while Marx keeps using these terms and they function and are an important part of the Marxist tradition, they're whole normative structure is reinvented because for Marx, and I think for most subsequent Marxists, if exploitation is wrong or problematic, I'm sorry, if expropriation is wrong or problematic, it is so not because it's a violation of one's original property rights, but rather because it's exploitation enabling, right? It pushes people into conditions that facilitate their exploitation or their domination. And so that's the kind of sort of second large part of the book. There's a whole chapter devoted to um, working through that argument and trying to think through the, the implications of it. And part of, I'm interested in that, not just, I'm partially interested in it just for its own sake, but also because I think that that's part of the um, background story to our general skepticism about trying to re resuscitate 
language, the languages of sort of expropriation and dispossession is because, at least for those of us coming out of a kind of critical theory tradition, they sound like antiquated concepts that are necessarily backward looking in the classical anarchist sense. And the, the, as you know, the idea is not to necessarily look backwards, but to sort of take the perspective that this is um, a forward-looking claim or claims. Um, but also, as you note, the sort of idea of discursive dispossession fits into that shift that you attribute to Marx in terms of having an understanding of dispossession that is distinct in a different way of thinking about that concept itself. Is that correct? Right. So I should just, I should just quickly say that it's um, the term I use in the book is, is recursive um, dis- disposition, which I can explain a little bit. I understand it's a little bit of a cumbersome and perhaps um, sort of jargony kind of term to use, but I, I hope it's well motivated and I hope to be able to show why that is useful in kind of undoing this knot, so to speak. So the basic idea is that in there's a we inherited a kind of backward and forward looking way of construing the problem, right? That either it's backward looking in the sense of it is normatively um, invested in prior possession, or in the Marxist version, it's forward looking in the sense that it, it is more about what the act of dispossession does by driving people into asymmetrical. Uh, relationships of domination and exploitation, right? And basically, I think that the kind of Marxist version is more compelling. It's more compelling in part because Marx is trying to show how the social group categories are themselves produced by the process, right? So in this case, the emergence of a, of a, of a rightless proletariat group of people is partially the product of this dispossession process. Now, I think sort of methodologically that that seems right and compelling to me. I think that the way of construing the problem as generating forward conditions that are themselves problematic is useful. But what I think basically is that those who have been working in the kind of critical theory tradition haven't actually reconstructed the actual historical processes outside of European context sufficiently. So in the North, in the Anglo settler world, there is a separation process, a kind of severing of people's direct relationships to the land and a pushing of people into new social group categories that can come to be conditioned by, for instance, relationships of domination. But in the Anglo settler context, it's not simply a wage proletariat group that is being produced by this process, but actually the whole category of Indians. That Indians as a kind of legal racial category, it emerges out of this process. So we end up with a group of people who are produced by the process in such a way as to facilitate both their kind of continued domination but also in such a way as to push them into this kind of paradoxical position with regard to their claims. And I think the reason why this happens is that in 
the European context, most of the debates um, proceed as if the primary concern is about the transferring of ownership of land from one party to another. But in the Anglo settler colonial context, we see that the process actually drives together two different things at once. So sort of two different um, processes are happening simultaneously. We have the transformation of non-proprietary relationships into proprietary relationships at the same time as we have a kind of systematic divestment of the newly created object of property from one party to another. So in other words, land is becoming propertyized, and at the same time, it's being propertyized in such a way as to systematically divest one of the parties involved, i.e. Indians, from access and control over it. So it's not just a transfer of property, it's also a transformation into property. The kind of making and taking um, have been combined into one gesture. And and this is this is what I found really fascinating in your discussion in the book, is to sort of contextualize this distinction that is, as you say, in the Anglophone world, so to some degree distinct from the European, although not completely distinct from the European, um, but it is it is about the way that um, the settler colonialists came to um, North America or Australia, as you note, or New Zealand, um, and 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 how the interaction, um, and as you say, the sort of dispossession of the land from those who were there initially, so that it's a different sort of discussion than you are indicating was going on with regard to, to some degree, the feudal system that had dominated Europe. Right. So in the, in the kind of standard narrative accounts within most European critical theory traditions, they're predominantly thinking about this along a kind of chronological axis, right? So they're looking at over historical time and they're trying the whole debate emerges out of a, this question of how did feudalism get critiqued, transformed, eventually destroyed, and converted into uh, contemporary capitalism. So it's predominantly along that chronological axis, this historical process. What is the nature of that historical process? And anarchists and Marxists and so on agree that dispossession or expropriation was one dimension of that historical process. But what I'm noticing is kind of a basic or simple point that at the same time that that's happening on the kind of chronological axis over time, those societies are also expanding spatially. So they're taking these newly generated capitalist kinds of relations and they're also exporting them uh, abroad. And when they go abroad, though, what they're encountering is not merely a repetition of the original process. It's not merely rehearsing the same drama, which has already been staged within the European context, but rather what's happening is something qualitatively different. Because in part, what they're doing is they're encountering groups of people who don't have 
uh, a kind of conception of land as an object which can be exclusively controlled by one party or by uh, a group of people. So what ends up happening in that context is, and I try to document this through, um, in particular, a series of um, legal mechanisms which were originally produced in the United States but which spread abroad, what they try to do is they first project onto those indigenous peoples some kind of minimal conceptions of property rights. So they suggest that indigenous peoples do in fact have proprietary interests and proprietary claims, but they're always um, what I call structurally negated. So they're truncated forms of rights to property and they're truncated forms of rights to property in the sense that they're, or they're sort of negative property rights in the sense that they can't actually be actualized. You can't do anything with the property right except to determine to whom you will alienate it. So what they do is they project onto indigenous peoples a kind of um, what I'm calling a sort of truncated set of interests or rights to the land, but they do so in such a way that these rights can't be actualized except by extinguishing them, that is, by determining to who you would grant them. One phrase that's used within the the literature on this is by um, a Lakota scholar um, named Vine Deloria Jr., who says that the fir- some of the first indigenous rights are essentially a right only to sell. So most property rights, of course, are kind of a tripartite a set or bundle of rights that include the right to acquisition, use and enjoyment, and then finally also a right to alienation. That is normally I would think of if I have a property right, then I have the right to divest myself of it in some way or another. I can sell it or gift it or um, leave it for inheritance. This third dimension of the property right, that is the right to bequeath this to someone else or to alienate it to someone through some process, that in effect Indian rights to land come to be only manifest in that third moment. That is, they only become actualized in the process of their transference to white Anglo settlers. And and in this context, this is one of the sort of threads that is quietly woven through. I think, um, and perhaps I'm I'm misreading um, some of this, but um, one of the points that I found to be interesting in thinking about the application of sort of the the Marxist and, and critical theory to some of these sort of ideas with regard to the confrontation between the Anglophone world and the indigenous people is the structural sort of um, discussion of individualism versus a kind of um, group approach or community approach. Um, which I, 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 as I said, I don't think it was an overt point that you were making, but it seemed to sort of come up a bit. Um, can you talk a little bit to some of that? Sure. So one of the, one of the things I find most, um, useful about the kind of broadly critical theory tradition of thinking about property is that most critical theorists, people kind of working in the wake of Hegel and Marx, 
would argue that it's very difficult to talk about property in the abstract. That is, there, there is no such thing as sort of property as such, but rather there are different historical permutations, different historical variations of property, and that these arise in different, against the backdrop of different uh, social contexts. And it's really the broader social context that imbues the property form with its particular valence, it's pr- the particular way that it works in any given instance, right? And one of the main kind of insights that I think is important about that for what I'm talking about is it helps us in part explain why someone would actually wish to resist having a property right ascribed to them. On the one hand, it seems to be that you would you would be gaining a kind of right, so that one that didn't exist in the previous period. But one of the things that a lot of these indigenous thinkers and organizers are trying are concerned with is how the ascribing of particular kinds of property rights against the backdrop of an emergent capitalist society tends to individuate that right, first of all. And so it tends to assume that the holder of the right can only be an individual. And what they notice, and often their objections aren't just sort of very abstract concerns with individualism or something like that, but rather with the function of that. What does that actually mean in practice? Well, historically in practice, the taking of the collective lands, collectively held lands of indigenous peoples, and the individuating of that collective holding into um, more like fee simple individual land holding tenure is the first step to making that land more fungible. That is to making it more accessible for appropriation in a piecemeal manner by more dominant social and political actors, right? I.e. settler colonizers. So, and you see this quite clearly in the kind of legal history of this. The, the most dramatic example of it in the United States is the Allotment Act. An allotment was really about trying to not just um, seize lands from indigenous peoples, but ostensibly to do it by individuating the landed property claims um, onto indigenous peoples as individuals rather than as collective or corporate bodies, the tribe or the band. And the reasons why the people who were the architects of those uh, policies did that is not because they were interested in trying to secure individual property rights for these people, but because they wanted to dissolve the corporate entity as a whole and render the legal property claims more accessible because they were more fungible, easier to disaggregate, move about, purchase in piecemeal manners. And that's exactly what happened. And we know that millions and millions of acres of land were subsequently taken from indigenous peoples through this kind of individuated property kinds of claims. And and one final question about the substance of your book that we haven't really touched on at all is the fact that later in the book, you talk about the black radical tradition um, and how this also helps to understand some of this concept of property um, or at least the sort of conceptions around the concept of property. Can you talk about how Black political thought um, has contributed to your broader thesis? Sure. 
So one whole chapter of the book is devoted to thinking through dispossession in a totally different kind of, uh, or, or what is seemingly a very different um, set of debates, and that's coming out of the Black radical tradition. And the Black radical tradition, there, I've learned a great deal about how to think about this differently, because there, there is a kind of analogous um, set of problems or debates. In that context, people have also deployed the concept of dispossession, uh, use it all the way up to today in contemporary Black political thought. Uh, but there's a similar ambivalence about its use. In that context, the primary sort of object of dispossession, the thing about which the struggle or around which the struggle pivots is the body. And obviously, this has to do with the history of slavery, the particular way in which um, black peoples have been rendered as objects of property for white ownership in the context of slavery, but also in particular, the emancipation process and how the emancipation process paradoxically granted a set of new kinds of rights, rights to personhood, to the formerly enslaved, but it was done in such a way that, that often um, people living in the wake of this found they couldn't really actualize their property rights, in particular their newly granted or claimed property rights to their labor power, except by alienating that proper that new property claim to white um, economic and social elites. So in the black radical tradition, particularly I'm looking at people coming out of the late 19th century, there's discussions of Frederick Douglass, of Du Bois, um, of Ida B. Wells. What people kind of working out of that tradition were trying to think through, I think, was how it was that the nominal expansion of new forms of property rights, in this case, property over one's person, could be could coexist with the deepening of socioeconomic forms of domination and control. How one could come to have a new right, but actually not be able to actualize that right, except by divesting it to someone else or otherwise alienating it. And I thought that that was so important, both because it puts then Black radical traditions in direct conversation with these Indigenous communities, but also because in the basic argument of that section of the text is that this isn't a coincidence, right? It's not that these are happening completely parallel tracks separate from one another, but rather what's happening is beneath and kind of behind the, the surface, there's a whole shift in the form of governance in this late 19th century period. That is, it increasingly comes to be the case that control and domination over historically subjugated um, peoples like indigenous peoples or African-Americans increasingly has to become um, legitimized through their consent. So forms of domination, of economic deprivation continue and persist, but increasingly they have to be scripted as if the subordinate parties have come to consent to it. And that's why there are increasingly elaborate legal mechanisms of ascribing new forms of rights to these people, but ascribing the rights to them in such a way as to make those rights um, 
ineffective or unable to be actualized other than through a process of self-abnegation or self-extinguishment, where they come to, in effect, participate in their own extinguishment of the content of their rights by precisely by contracting those rights or extinguishing those rights to someone else. And that seems to me, I think, to be not coincidental that we see kind of parallel or similar processes happening to these indigenous peoples with respect to land, as we see with formerly enslaved African-Americans with respect to property over their person. And so what shall we do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first step of the book is to try to, um, in a sense, analyze the sources of this dilemma, right? To try to show where this comes about and how this comes about. Then it is to try to provide a novel conceptualization for it. So I should say that this is why I, in the book, refer to this as a recursive form of dispossession what the, and what the title, which is a sort of play on but reversal of the um, classical anarchist slogan, because what I'm looking at here is ways in which essentially extra legal forms of seizure are actually generating the property rights themselves. So in effect, theft produces the property rather than property, rather than theft presupposing property, it actually uh, produces it. So this is what I'm kind of trying to conceptualize as recursive because rather than thinking of property and theft being in a sort of strictly linear relationship, they actually come to um, produce one another in a recursive or circular fashion. Possession isn't the presupposition of dispossession under this uh, rubric, but rather it's its effect. So the first thing, the first step is to try to diagnose the source of that historically, how it emerged. Then I think it is to conceptualize it clearly enough that we can get a better handle on it. The final step, I think, um, and this is what's discussed in the conclusion of of the book, is to look at different kinds of struggles, and I return in that part to um, indigenous struggles, different kinds of struggles that have attempted to prize apart this dilemma. And my way of doing that is to look at different forms of indigenous struggles that are in a sense trying to um, disaggregate property relations in some ways, to pull them apart and to reconfigure them in novel ways so as to get themselves out of this dilemma, this kind of colonial dilemma. One of the examples I look at um, in the the conclusion of the text is uh, movements which have taken hold in a number of different contexts, but especially strongly within Australia and New Zealand. There's a smaller, um, more minor version of it in Canada. And these are movements that essentially try to reclaim control over um, these colonized lands, but also to take them out of control so that no one in particular has, in effect, a direct proprietary interest or claim over it. So how do you retake something, but also then take it out of property ownership? Well, one way in which these indigenous communities have done that is by a novel legal mechanism whereby a form of legal personhood is actually ascribed to the land formation itself. 
So in effect, the land is not owned by anyone, but is rather itself a legal person with its own rights. Then a kind, in a fiduciary or um, duty-based kind of manner, certain groups of people are invested with protecting and defending that land. That's one way in which those movements have both resisted the propertyization of the earth, but also taken it out of, taken control back over it, but done so in a way as to take it out of that kind of proprietary form. And the purpose of that kind of last section is not to necessarily endorse any one particular version of that, but rather to see it as a very inventive way to try to get around in a very practical kind of legal context to get around the dilemma, which is described as emerging over the long course of the um, you know, 100, 150 year period that is surveyed by the book itself. And, and so I, I mean, I, it, it makes you sort of rethink the idea of land um, and property as being, again, a kind of individual who, who then has rights. Exactly, exactly. What you end up with is the idea of the earth as having, uh, in a sense, kind of moral worth of its own. And that we still have strong, we can still make strong sort of claims, strong normative claims, even legal claims. But those claims tend to then pivot more around a grammar of care, an obligation, of duty and protection, rather than through the grammar of ownership, control, exclusive proprietary interests, and so on. What, we're trying, what they're trying to do, I think, and I think quite rightly in a way that is increasingly urgent in a, in, given the uh, ecological catastrophes facing us, is to try to imagine the earth as something other than merely an object to be owned and controlled and plundered at the will of whoever has effective control over it at the time. And it also brings you back to the the sort of contention in the claims made by indigenous people that they both own the property, but that the property itself is not ownable because it is the earth. That's right. Yeah. So it's a way of making that actualizing those claims in a real kind of world context. So one of the, it's almost cliche, but one of the refrains that one hears often in these contexts is that the earth does not belong to us, but that we belong to it. That then, moves out of being a mere slogan to being a real form of politics with a form of social organization and a set of legal relations attached to it. When we try to uh, look, when we look closely at these kind of anti-dispossession movements. And so given the complicated nature of this thesis, Robert, what are you working on now? <laughs> well, I am working on um, two projects. This book actually was originally a much larger um, book. Um, so I had started by writing a book that had a lot more to do with the history of political thought, much more in the vein of the work that has been done in the past by um, people such as uh, Jennifer Pitts and Sankar Mutu and Karuna Mantina and Uday Singh Mehta, all this work that has been done on the history of political thought of empire and imperialism, 
And I was interested in doing, in writing a work that sort of contributed and complemented that, that earlier uh, wave of work by looking specifically at the history of political thought with regard to Anglo settler colonialism. So I originally had a much larger book of, of that sort. Um, what I've done is kind of taken out this specific na- narrower argument about possession and property um, and written it up uh, as a separate project. But now I'm going to go back and kind of complete this other larger uh, work on mostly 19th century history of political thought with regard to settler colonialism. Uh, and then I also have a bit uh, a smaller project that I'm just getting started on, which has to do with conceptualizing violence um, in this context. And and so when you are finished with one or both of these projects, will you come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast and talk to me about them? I'd love to. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, today I was joined by Robert Nichols, who's the author of Theft is Property, Dispossession and Critical Theory. This book was published in 2020 by Duke University Press. I'm sure it is available at Duke University Press website. Robert, any place you'd like to give a shout out to, one can purchase your book? Um, well, the only thing I should say about the the purchasing of the book is that I'm proud to say that I've been able to work with Duke University Press um, and a special um, initiative that was developed by a consortium of university libraries so as to make the book open access. Great. So the book is free to download for anybody who wishes to do so. And you should be able to access an open access version of the text either through Duke University Press or through your university library. Um, Super. Done in part to (laughs) sort of put my money where my mouth is and to think differently about intellectual property relations um, as they circulate within the academy as well. Great. So it is available open access via Duke University Press website or possibly likely Euro also university library. Thank you for joining me today, Robert, to talk about theft as property. It was my pleasure. Thank you.